This is Making Babies, a podcast all about pregnancy. Pregnancy can be such a confusing and anxious time when parents are completely focused on the health of the mother and baby. There are so many questions and so much to learn about all the recommendations and current trends in pregnancy and childbirth. We hope this podcast can offer some answers in a scientific and medically accurate way and along the way provide some really interesting conversations. I'm Blythe Bernhard, medical reporter at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and I'm in my second pregnancy. So I share your curiosity and excitement about this incredible journey that is making babies. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Allison Cahill, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Washington University and Division Chief of Maternal Fetal Medicine. Today we are talking about pregnancy after age 35. Today, about 16% of all moms um, in giving birth in the U.S. are 35 and older. Uh, welcome, Dr. Cahill. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Sure. Uh, so, as you know, births to moms over 40 have now surpassed births to moms younger than 20 in some countries, including Canada, the U.K., and Australia. Uh, while in the U.S., we're not quite at that point, the teen birth rate is on the decline and the birth rate for older moms is on the rise. So um, what do you think is driving this trend? Well, I think it's a few things. Um, I think with respect to uh, the relationship to teen births, I think that that's great news. Um, Certainly um, advances in contraception um, and education about contraception for um, young women and adolescents uh, and the uptake to that has really really grown. Um, And you know, I think that that has influenced family planning in general and women really planning when their pregnancies uh, are going to be much more so. Um, and then, you know, I think that uh, certainly as women um, pursue careers or try and plan having children around those careers or education or other types of things that they'd like to pursue, um, oftentimes that means that they're planning pregnancies uh, later in their life. So as moms are uh, waiting longer to have their babies, what what do we know about how uh, fertility declines with age? Right. Well, sadly, our fertility starts declining from almost birth. Um, So that's just part of nature and what we know about um, aging aging ovaries. Um, But, you know, as long as women um, continue to... um, ovulate, uh, especially on their own, then really, you know, many women are able to successfully achieve pregnancy uh, later in life. Um, And of course, uh, there are other advances to help women become pregnant who aren't able to do so on their own. So when you're taking care of moms who are 35 and older or even 40 and older, is the prenatal care schedule the same? Is the protocol the same, the number of ultrasounds? Is that the same as for younger moms? You know, it's pretty much the same uh, for for women who are uh, 35 and 36 as it is for those who are, you know, 30 and 31. I would say the change uh, happens more significantly at the age of 40 and beyond uh, when we uh, really kind of change a bit what their prenatal care looks like. So how, how does it differ? Yeah, so there are some um, increases in uh, possible abnormalities with the pregnancy that really actually are a continuum and increase, um, you know, across uh, a woman's lifespan. Um, But there are some pregnancy risks 
uh, that are increased uh, for women that are over the age of 40, and it's really related to those that we increase surveillance. So women over the age of 40 uh, have an increased risk of the baby growing smaller than should be or growth restricted and an increased risk of stillbirth. Um, and so for both of, to address both of those risks, we add some additional surveillance to their prenatal care, including um, growth ultrasounds, typically about every three to four weeks um, throughout the second half of pregnancy, um, and then something called non-stress testing, um, or a way to assess the baby's well-being about twice a week, and we typically do that from 32 weeks until the end of pregnancy. And what about uh, when you make the decision to induce labor? Do you do that earlier for older moms? And, and if so, why? Yeah, that's a great question. We don't actually um, per se in, uh, induce them earlier. Um, just like any moms who are at increased risk for stillbirth, uh, we know that once 39 weeks is reached, so that's one week prior to the due date, that uh, women, um, that the babies are as mature as they would be at their due date and in, in the week afterwards, meaning kind of no downside to the baby for delivery. Um, but continuing on the pregnancy would continue to persist with that risk of stillbirth. So women over the age of 40, we uh, recommend labor induction at 39 weeks if they haven't gone into labor or delivered on their own before then. For women, um, for other reasons, you know, there, there isn't really um, a reason to deliver them any earlier than that. Uh, they just are really similar in that way to other women who are at increased risk of stillbirth. Okay. Um, so you've, you've already touched on this, but, I mean, how, what do we know about uh, quantifying how much more risky pregnancy is for the older mother? What about in terms of gestational diabetes or preeclampsia or other complications like that? Sure. Well, I would I would want to say though that women, um, you know, that are over the age of 35, and even women over the age of 40, you know, most most women still have healthy pregnancies. Uh, but it is true, as you mentioned, that there are some increased risks. Um, we talked about a couple um, as it relates to the baby. Uh, there are also increased rates of preeclampsia and uh, gestational uh, hypertension, so high blood pressure diseases of pregnancy, um, and there are um, increases in the uh, risk of developing gestational diabetes, as you mentioned. So thank you for saying that most pregnancies are healthy. Um, still, what do we know about in the increased risk for fetal abnormalities for moms uh, as they're older than 35? Yeah, that's actually, uh, I think, a, a really interesting question and one that we've done actually a little bit of uh, work on recently. Um, so as moms get older, uh, there is an increased risk in uh, some uh, genetic abnormalities. Um, and the m most uh, common ones that we think of are abnormalities of chromosome number or aneuploidy. Um, and the most common of those is trisomy 21 or Down syndrome. Um, and so with each year that a woman becomes older, her risk just based on her age of having a pregnancy um, that the baby has Down syndrome increases. Um, and then there are other less common aneuploidies, but those also increase as a mom's age increases. Um, so outside of genetic complications, um, interestingly, 
there does not seem to be for women over the age of 35 an increase in the risk of having a baby who has a congenital anomaly, so a birth defect, if you will. Um, so we, our group actually wondered that ourselves and uh, published a paper just a year or two ago um, that looked at whether or not it seemed to be that moms um, carrying live pregnancies had, uh, without evidence of any genetic abnormality, had an increased risk of having a congenital malformation or a birth defect, and it, it did not appear to be so. So um, you mentioned your, your own research, and do you think that as these numbers grow, as more moms have babies after 35 and after 40, that we will have an even better idea of these risks? Basically, we'll be having a, a larger denominator for, to look at this data? Well, I think for sure. I mean, as an epidemiologist, we love big denominators. So I think uh, we, in medicine and especially in obstetrics, we're always learning more. Um, and as we see um, clinical scenarios like women uh, having uh, children in their later years of life, we certainly will come to learn more. Um, but that being said, you mentioned the statistics um, of other countries, and while we're not there, this obviously is um, a growing uh, phenomenon in the United States, and there are more than 4 million births every year. So while certainly I'm sure we will continue to learn more, I think that we know a fair amount now, and uh, that helps us to, as we mentioned earlier, to change our approach to prenatal care for these women and change perhaps other additional testing or things that we talk about with families and counsel them. Um, which can further optimize the pregnancies. Can you explain to us uh, the, this genetic testing that's available to older moms, or at least probably covered by their insurance? Um, that's a blood test for the mother. Um, seems like these tests have become more popular in recent years. And as more women are taking those tests, have you found that uh, there have been fewer procedures like amniocentesis and more invasive tests? Well, the short answer to that is yes for the last part. Um, so we have been able to, the, the testing that um, I think that you're referring to is testing that we can offer uh, patients and their partners um, to further um, help them identify whether we think the pregnancy they're carrying um, is complicated by uh, a genetic abnormality. Um, you know, some genetic abnormalities we can test for and some we can't. Of those we can test for, um, we've been able to screen women for a fair amount of time and diagnose them for a fair amount of time. The new testing is a sort of a refinement of the screening test. So what I mean by that is for women who need to know 100% for sure, uh, we really still only have two choices for diagnostic testing, meaning actually taking a sample of the genetic material related to the pregnancy and looking at all of the chromosomes and the chromosome number and so forth. And that's doing chorionic villa sampling or an amniocentesis, as you mentioned. The unfortunate part about both of those tests is that they do bring some risk to the pregnancy, specifically that you could lose the pregnancy um, from the procedure itself. And because you're, you're pulling out some amniotic fluid for those tests? You got it. So for the, that's exactly what it is for an amniocentesis. So amniocentesis is 
uh, performed after 15 weeks. And under ultrasound guidance, we would take a sample of that fluid, and that fluid has the, um, the genetic makeup of the baby. A chorionic villa sampling is performed uh, in the late part of the first trimester, um, and that is taking a sample um, of cells from the placenta. Um, and both of those procedures are associated with miscarriage, and while that's infrequent, um, oftentimes that risk is, is not acceptable to families. So we talked a little bit about how each um, patient, just based on her age, has some risk of an abnormality, and we'll take Down syndrome as an example. Um, so some risk of Down syndrome. And for quite some time now, we've been able to um, offer a variety of tests that are some combination of blood tests and blood levels of certain markers and an ultrasound measurement in the first trimester and combine those all together and give a patient a new set of numbers, meaning you were talking about numerators and denominators earlier that the risk of, let's say, a, patient's, a particular patient's risk of a baby with Down syndrome is 1 in 800 based on her age, but after we've done this testing, I can come back to her and say now the risk is 1 in 5,000. And for some families, doing that helps them feel like that's become a rare enough risk that they wouldn't want to take on any additional testing. The new testing that has become available in the last couple of years, um, and as you mentioned, is covered by insurance for women over the age of 35, is cell-free fetal DNA testing. And what that means is that with no risk to moms, we can take a sample of their blood and we can find their baby's DNA in mom's blood and we can give them uh, an idea of the risk of Down syndrome and a couple of other abnormalities of chromosome number. And we can do that with a much um, with much higher precision with that new kind of test than we could with the older test of sort of shifting people's numbers. Because that test performs so well, particularly for Down syndrome, um, it is it has become our experience that more and more families elect to do that test, which brings no risk to the pregnancy, and feel comfortable with the results of that test um, without having to go on to any additional testing. But it is important to remember that that test, the cell-free fetal DNA testing, um, is only looking at abnormalities of chromosome number of the most common of those. So that's chromosome 21, 18, 13, and the sex chromosomes, what makes us a boy or a girl. Um, but as we know, we have many more chromosomes. And the testing on the samples from amniocentesis and from chorionic villa sampling has also made a lot of progress. And so with those types of tests, we can not only test for abnormalities of chromosome number, but we can test for much smaller abnormalities. So we can test for abnormalities at the level of groups of genes that are missing. Um, so it's a, a really a different level of information uh, that comes from uh, the diagnostic test um, as well. And uh, well, thank you for explaining that 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 blood test of the mother um, that can be done fairly early on, right, in the first trimester. It can, yeah. So just around the same time that we would offer 
chorionic villus sampling or the other type of testing, that ultrasound and the, and the blood, um, we recommend that women uh, don't have it before um, uh, 10 weeks because the levels of the baby's DNA can be too low to detect. Uh, but yes, um, women can have that done in the, uh, the second half of the, of the first trimester. I wanted to ask you, why, why do older moms have significantly higher rates of C-sections? I saw a number, uh, I recently saw a number that women over 45 are approaching uh, a two-thirds rate of C-sections. So 62% of women over 45 will, will have a C-section. Why is that? That's a good question. You know, I think... Um I think probably that statistic is going to move a little bit, um, meaning that, as you mentioned earlier, the denominator gets bigger. So still, you know, it's becoming more common that women have babies over 35 and over 40, um, but it's not a huge number of women who are having babies over 45. So I think that part of that is just that'll be a number that we'll continue to watch. Um, But that being said, you know, women over the age of 45, excuse me, women over the age of 45 have increased risk of some of the things we talked about before, um, like preeclampsia um, and gestational diabetes. And um, the, it's really, once you've developed pregnancy complications, uh, the chances of requiring a cesarean for kind of a variety of reasons increases. So I would not be inclined so much to say that age itself per se um, is necessarily the risk factor, but more it's the things that come with pregnancy at a later age that make the chances of requiring a cesarean for delivery um, higher. You know, women over the age of 40 and certainly over the age of 45 are much more likely to become pregnant using assisted reproduction. And with that comes a significant increased risk of multiple gestations, meaning twins or triplets or more. And there's a significant increased risk of cesarean uh, once you're carrying a multiple gestation. Um, in our practice, as an example, um, women who are carrying triplets or more than triplets all deliver by cesarean. Um, and that's really just related to the fact that it's so challenging to monitor um, three babies in a single belly over the course of a labor in a safe way. Um, so I think that there are other things that come along with those later maternal ages, and it's really those things that are related to the increase uh, in the cesarean rate. Are you seeing more multiple births? Are you seeing more triplets as, as moms get older and, and do you use more, have more assistance? Um, we are. Um, we're, we're certainly seeing more twins. Um, and I think that, um, you know, the the folks who specialize in um, assisted reproductive technology, um, so reproductive endocrine, endocrinologists and infertility docs, um, appreciate all of the risks that we've talked about here today. So they, I think, have been um, in incredi- incredibly proactive in being at the forefront of trying as best as the technology will allow them to, to control things like the number of embryos that are placed back, um, and having very careful counseling with couples uh, to try and reduce those risks before they're in front of us. So I, I wanted to wrap up our conversation on a more positive note. So can you tell us, um, please let us know, there are some benefits and advantages to having children to wait to have them later in life? 
Well, sure. I mean, I think probably, you know, the parents themselves could tell you that honestly better, better than I could. Um, but certainly we know that, um, that families that are planned later in life, um, you know, one is that families are oftentimes in a different position to care for their children, uh, both kind of in terms of time and uh, intellectually and planning and stability of partnership and the fact that the pregnancy itself is planned and financial stability um, and and many other things. Um, I think that all of us probably could say that uh, there is wisdom that comes with age, or at least we hope so, uh, and we would bring that to anything we do, and I would say that that includes parenting. So, um, and I think that, you know, we know that it's important for women to be able and their and their partners to be able to pr- plan pregnancies. Um, so we still have a very high rate of unplanned pregnancies in the United States and really around the world. And the idea is that, you know, with planned pregnancies, you know, parents are, are anticipating, um, excuse me, that we know planned pregnancies in expected parents are uh, much more of what the goal is. Um, as opposed to unplanned pregnancies. So I I think that there are many upsides um, for uh, women and their partners uh, to wait and uh, have children uh, later in life. And as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, really still most couples have healthy babies. And while we're really looking forward to learning more and more about um, what it is to optimally care for women who are having children later in life. I think that we've learned a fair amount and uh, really have some additional things that we can add to prenatal care to optimize how they do. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Cahill, for your time and your perspectives today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You can find this and other episodes of Inside the Post-Dispatch at stltoday.com slash podcast or by searching Post-Dispatch in the iTunes Store or Google Play Music. And while you're there, be sure to check out the best podcast in baseball with Derek Gould and Benjamin Hockman.